Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is an eminent scientist who has reservations about peer review and the value of many scientific publications. In that regard, he says, When I looked back over the previous 10 years, we found, to my horror, that most of the projects that had been based on work published by famous scientists from famous institutions in the top tier journals, most of that work could not be reproduced even by the researchers themselves. My guest on the podcast today is Glenn Begley. Glenn Begley, you're very, very welcome to the program. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. And you are an eminent scientist. And I wanted to explore with you how that came to be. How did you get to this point in your career? I started off my university training as a medico. So I graduated from medicine at the University of Melbourne. Then I went on and did my training in hematology and medical oncology. So qualified as a physician and a hematologist, pathologist. And then I went back to university and did a PhD at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. And then that started me on a research career, which I've really continued for the rest of my professional career. I've worked as an oncologist, so looking after patients uh, with cancer, and then for a number of years focused on research with the belief that you can do more in research to influence the outcome of patients than you can doing medicine, treating one patient at a time. Tell us a little bit about your greatest contribution to science or what you consider to be your greatest contribution to science. The things that I'm most proud of are some of the drugs that have been used by tens of millions of patients. So at least 30 million patients have been treated with drugs that I had the privilege of working on. Drug discovery, drug development is a team effort. So another one of the issues that I'm really proud of is the teams that I've been able to build over the years. So when I say I've discovered and developed a drug, that's only partly true because it's a team effort. And I'm proud that I touched them, but many hundreds of other people were actually involved as well. So one of the mistakes I think we make is believing that a drug or a major research breakthrough is attributed to an individual. That's almost never the case, but we choose to treat scientists as individual heroes like film stars or superstars. But the truth is, it's always a team effort. And one of the things that I'm very proud of is the wonderful teams that I've been able to build. From that perspective, you say that we do treat our scientists as rock stars. And I can think of a number of individuals who, in the course of my career as a scientist, I've observed, achieved that status of rock star. The institutions and employers who take these people on and support them in those careers offer them all kinds of rewards for the science that they're leading, regardless of the teams that are around them. And that creates incentives for people to see themselves as 
the big eye, as it were, in science. Where do you think that comes from? And what do you think is the impact of that on the science that is then subsequently reported? So we've created a cult of personality rather than a cult of quality. So the junior scientists coming through see these iconic professors and naturally they want to follow in their footsteps. And this is all perpetuated by awarding prizes and so on that celebrate individuals rather than celebrating teams. But the crucial importance of a of a team is evident in drug discovery and drug development, where truly thousands or tens of thousands of people are involved in getting a drug actually to market. So when we point to one or two individuals and say they were responsible, that's a falsehood and it further perpetuates the myth that this is something that individuals can do. It's frankly not something that individuals can do. You need a team of experts who have complementary expertise in different areas that when they come together are able to do something truly remarkable, and that is to discover and develop a drug that might impact the outcome of a disease for hundreds or thousands or millions of people. In terms of what it means in the academic environment is that it's an individual that wins a prize or maybe two or three. It's an individual that gets elected to the academies of science. It's not the team. It's typically an individual who's the principal investigator on a grant. And for them to have won that grant often requires that they've published paper in one of the top tier journals. And then if they're successful in doing that, they can be confident that they'll get their next job or they'll get promoted or they'll get their next grant. So there is an incentive in place for people to try and get papers published in the top tier journals or what are believed to be the top tier journals, as that secures ongoing funding for their research guarantees that they'll continue to attract postdoctoral fellows or PhD students and so on. But sadly, there is no quality metric in terms of research. So it's not about the quality of the work. It's about the number of papers that you've published or the journal that it's published in or the number of times that paper is cited. That's what gives scientists currency. It's not the quality of the work. However, if you're interested in developing drugs, if I've got cancer, my cancer doesn't care that the paper was published in one of the top tier journals. The cancer doesn't care that the paper was cited a thousand times. That might guarantee the promotion of a professor, but my cancer only cares if the drug actually works. So that's the way that I think about uh, research not in terms of how it promotes an individual career, but how it can be used as a foundation upon which to build drugs that might actually benefit humankind. But of course, the journal articles and the grants are not determined by individuals. So it's not like there is a vice chancellor of a university or an editor of a journal, seemingly, who 
decides on the rewards that are going to follow a particular individual, there are so-called peer-reviewed committees. Is that not some kind of protection against the kind of thing that leads to faulty science being published? Scientists often hide behind the charade of peer review. Peer review is a highly inadequate and uh, inept process. So I give uh, seminars on why it is you can't believe most of the papers that are published in the top tier journals. And work that we published in the year 2012 was based on 10 years of history at a biotech company where I was working called Amgen on the west coast of the US. And when I looked back over the previous 10 years, we found, to my horror, that most of the projects that had been based on work published by famous scientists from famous institutions in the top tier journals, most of that work could not be reproduced even by the researchers themselves. We were only able to find 11% of researchers that were able to reproduce their work. That is despite the work being peer-reviewed. So I now give talks on that subject to try and help people understand how they should read scientific papers. And one of the examples that I use from a paper that's published in one of the top-tier journals shows a graph where two and a half mice died at day 45 and another two and a half mice died at day 55. Now, you don't have to be a biologist to know that you can't have the death of half a mouse, but that paper was peer-reviewed. It was reviewed by the editors of one of the top-tier journals, and it's sadly been cited by the academic community almost a thousand times, again, giving currency to those researchers for findings that are clearly of no real consequence when you talk about half a mouse dying. So peer-review is not a process that is robust and rigorous and guarantees that the work that is published is high quality. But it is trotted out all the time as one of the examples of why we can trust science. There's another myth, and that is that science is self-correcting. And it can be over time self-correcting, but it can take many years and examples where it is clearly not self-correcting, are of scientific papers that were faulty or fraudulent and actually retracted. So they appear in the literature with a stamp on them saying, retracted, don't believe any of this work. But even after a paper has been retracted, it continues to be cited and continues to generate fame for the original authors because people don't seem to notice or care that a paper has been retracted. So there are two myths that are very common. One is that peer review protects us from this, and the second is that science is self-correcting. And it probably is self-correcting. Given sufficient time, the truth will come out, but it's not something that happens in the short term. Glenn, who is it that benefits from what is clearly a flawed process? The researchers. So the whole process of incentives is what drives this. So if as a researcher, I'm able to get my paper published in a top tier journal, as I've mentioned earlier, that will guarantee that I'll get my next grant. It'll guarantee that I get 
students and postdoctoral fellows wanting to join my lab, it'll probably mean that I get promoted or reappointed. So it's the researchers who benefit from telling a story that may be only partially true or actually even totally incorrect. So this has enormous implications, both in terms of cost, the estimate in the US alone, in terms of what I refer to as sloppy science, costs the US alone $28 billion, with a B, dollars per annum. And for the rest of the world, the, the number is probably even greater. And that's not to count the people who might be enrolled on a clinical study that's built on this sloppy, perhaps fraudulent research and who are offered treatments then that may have little or no hope of actually benefiting them. So it's a system whereby, as human beings generally, we respond to the incentives that are put in front of us. So if we take highly intelligent, ambitious people who are scientists and tell them that they need to publish papers in the top-tier journals to secure their future, then we'll find ways to publish papers in the top-tier journals to secure that future. So it's really human behaviour that we're looking at. It's not as though it's something restricted to scientists. It's just the way human beings respond to incentives that are put in front of them. Yes, agreed. It's human beings who respond to those kind of incentives, but the organisations that incentivize them Why does it happen in the way that you're describing? I think the fundamental problem, the rating agencies, so all of the universities around the world are rated and ranked. So the universities take enormous pride in where they appear on the rating scale, whether it's from Times or whether it's from the Leiden scale. And the ranking that a university enjoys determines whether or not international students flock to that institution. It determines the level of philanthropic funding that the institution receives. So from an institutional point of view, it's critically important to rank highly and outcompete the other universities. It's very reminiscent of the rating agencies that contributed to the global economic crisis. I don't know if you or your listeners have seen the film, The Big Short, but there it was the rating agencies who were really complicit and they rated many of the investments as AAA, even though they knew that they were junk bonds and so on. So the rating agencies rank the universities and they only look at positive outcomes. That is the number of papers that are published the number of times that the papers are cited, the number of Nobel laureates that an institution produces, and so on. But they don't look at things like how many publications were retracted, how many were assessed to be fraudulent. They don't look at things like how many of the professors were found responsible for uh, sexual harassment or mistreating their students and postdocs and so on. So. It's only based on the positive aspects with little or no consequences for bad behaviours. So because the rating agencies rank the universities like that, the universities 
have to ensure that the professors at the institution are doing the very best they can to get their papers in the top tier journals where they're more likely to be cited. And that then ensures that the institution enjoys success and that the professors enjoy the success that follows both individually because they're able to get their grants and at an institutional level because the institution is successful attracting students from overseas and so on. This is not a new story. I remember hearing similar things when I started way back 20, 30 years ago. Why is it that we tolerate this situation in 2021? You're right. It's not a new story. It's been going on for some time. I think uh, there are a couple of things. I think that the people that trained me in science, that my PhD supervisor and my first postdoctoral supervisor when I was working in the US, could not imagine that this was happening. And when I described it to them, they believed me, but found it very difficult to comprehend because they were people of such high standards, so careful, so rigorous about their research. They assumed everyone else was the same. That's not the case. But so that's part of it. The cult of personality, I think, has shaken the foundation of science because we recognize and reward the superheroes of science without recognizing the importance of quality research. So I think that's part of it. Another part of it is that the funding agencies, to my mind, have been derelict in their responsibility to ensure that they are only funding quality research. So the funding agencies are happy to fund me or you or someone else if we've got our papers published in the top tier journals, but they typically don't have the time or the resources to actually read those papers and see if they're papers that are of high quality. They believe that publishing in the top tier journals is a surrogate for quality. It's not, but that's a shorthand way of thinking about how we'll measure research productivity, which is what it does measure, but it doesn't measure quality. And I think the funding agencies around the world are only just beginning, well, maybe in the last decade, to grapple with this issue and realise that the public expects more for the taxpayer dollars that are used to fund the research enterprise. Funding agencies are also advised by the very poachers who are going to benefit from what you're describing. So if you think about peer review panels that are used by funding agencies, they come from within the institutions that are already benefiting from the status quo, are they not? That's correct. And the people who run many of the funding institutions internationally have been successful in the very system that I'm criticising. So it's not surprising that they get to the top of the tree and are then reluctant to point out the weaknesses, the problems that are inherent within the system that they now manage and run and supervise. But you're right, the peer review process itself is simply people who also stand to benefit from the very system that they're supposed to be objectively and independently reviewing. The other challenge is that 
innovation doesn't tend to occur, well, it tends to occur largely at the edges of science. So the Me Too projects that we see funded over and over and over again tend to repeat the mistakes of previous iterations of the same experiments. And yet funding agents, they're very risk averse. Is that another part of the problem? I think that probably is true. And you've actually highlighted another issue, and that is the reluctance of the top-tier journals to publish what they think of as a negative result. So we describe a result as positive or as negative. Now, what that really means is if it's positive, it means I like the result and it supports my favourite thesis. If it's negative, it means I don't like the result and it might actually be contradictory to what I want to believe. But by using those labels, we're not actually describing the science. And I believe we learn more from a negative result because that should cause us to challenge the hypothesis, challenge our core beliefs in a particular system. And an experiment that's done properly that yields a negative result, that is one that I don't like, but that should cause me to go back to the drawing board, actually teaches me more than an experiment that generates a positive result. But the top-tier journals are very reluctant to publish something that's negative. They would much rather have a flashy story that gets everyone excited than a story that refutes core hypothesis. So that's another issue. It's very hard if I've done an experiment really very well and the conclusion is very clear, but it falls into that category of negative results. It's very difficult to get that published in a top-tier journal, even though it's probably more valuable than the flashy results that get people excited but may be completely wrong, but that will more readily get published in one of the top-tier journals. So where to from here? If you're a young scientist and you want to do useful work and you're driven by the passion for the science, you know that it's going to be expensive. You know that you're going to need resource in order to take your ideas forward. Mm -hmm. And yet, yet in order to do that, you're going to have to sell your soul to a system that you know offers perverse incentives to limit your horizons, at least your scientific horizons. Where to from here? So I think most importantly, young scientists can't be trapped into the same system that their principal investigator has signed on to. So I've had the privilege of speaking to young scientists all around the world. And when I ask them why they went into science, it's typically because Uncle Harry had an, a heart attack or Auntie Myrtle had cancer. And that was uh, very motivating for them. So they went into research to try and do something important in terms of heart disease or cancer. I think. It's crucially important that people never lose that sense of vision. Why did they do it in the first place? They didn't go into science to publish a paper in a journal like Nature. They didn't go into science to try and make sure they became professors with 20 or 30 students in their lab. 
They went into science to try and do something to benefit humankind. And so I think it's critically important that young scientists remember that. They didn't go into science to impress me, didn't go into science to impress you. They went into science because they had some vision for themselves. And that's critically important that they retain that and don't change it for something else, although many of them, their colleagues may do so around them. I think the other thing is it's important to have a sense of humility because science is, and certainly drug discovery and development, is not something that is easy and more times than not, you'll be humbled by the results that you discover. You know, a number of times in my career, my most favourite idea has been proven to be wrong. Well, that's humbling. But if you can't accept that, you'll continue down the path trying to prove that your idea, which I was in love with, was actually right, even though it's clearly not the case. So I think it's important to maintain a sense of vision and to maintain a sense of humility because what we're trying to do is something that the world has never done before. And so we will make mistakes. Uh, We will generate results that we don't like, but those results will force us to rethink and force us to challenge our own ideas and hypotheses, even if we love them very dearly. How do you hold on to your integrity when you're working in an environment where on a daily basis you see the evidence of the kind of thing that we've been talking about in this conversation? Well, I think it's tough and I think it's especially tough for young scientists coming into organisations. Science is about scepticism. It's about challenging everything. Regardless of who said it, it's still something that can and should be challenged. So institutions need to do their part to try and help young scientists find a voice. But even within a laboratory, it's critically important that a young scientist can challenge the principal investigator and hold them to account and vice versa, not in a rude or offensive manner, but We're not challenging the individual, we're challenging the data. And when people put a piece of information down on the table and say, this is my data, well, that's where we should begin. It's not your data, it's not my data, it's data, it's a result. And it doesn't belong to you or belong to me. It's either right or wrong. And we should be very serious in the way that we address and dissect that rather than taking it personally as though it's an idea of mine that's being challenged. The institutions have a responsibility to try and make sure there is an environment where young students, postdoctoral fellows and so on, can honestly, openly, transparently challenge data. Agreed. I think the challenge, however, is for senior supervisors who see their apprentice who could make a difference and who has got the qualities that you're talking about, has the integrity, who who is determined that the data tell the story and that the data doesn't get in the way of a good story, as it were. How do those people supervise folk in a way that allows that to happen without it being seen to be counter to the 
goals of the institution, which is, as I've heard said at interviews, to be number one in Australia or wherever it happens to be? The institutions have enormous responsibility here and they, the institution needs to put in place procedures that will protect junior staff. So the sorts of things that institutions should be doing, very few, if any, do, they should have random audits of laboratory notebooks so that any principal investigator can suddenly find that the department of the institution that's responsible for data integrity has come into the lab to review all of their lab notebooks unannounced to see whether or not the sorts of things that I'm saying I'm doing are actually being recorded in the lab notebooks. That would be one thing that could happen. Another thing the institution should be doing is putting in place individuals who are mentoring the students and postdoctoral fellows and to whom the students can turn for advice and guidance outside their own lab for advice and guidance in terms of how they should deal with problems. Institutions should take responsibility for those senior investigators who treat their students badly, who are not open to rigorous scrutiny, who are shutting down discussions related to the science and so on. And those senior people should lose the privilege of training students and postdocs. So the institutions really have to take this much more seriously. One of the pieces of advice that I give junior researchers starting out on their career is first, when you're looking at a particular lab, search the researchers on sites like PubPeer and Retraction Watch. See how many papers they've had to retract because of the quality or fraud, how they're being reviewed on PubPeer, and stay away from those labs, even if they're famous labs from famous institutions. So a lot can be done by the person thinking about the lab that they're going into, thinking about that seriously and doing more than just looking at the papers that are coming out and how highly those papers are being cited. Many of the people who've been listening to this conversation today are patients with rare conditions or patients who have a chronic condition that relies on the very science that we've been discussing today. What do we say to them? Who is protecting their interests today while we go about getting our house in order? So I'm really pleased that you asked that question because what I'm talking about is laboratory research. I've mentioned earlier, you know, half a mouse dying. So that's fundamentally different to drugs that have been reviewed by the international regulatory authorities, be it the FDA in the US or the TGA in Australia. These regulatory authorities wouldn't accept a study that had only four mice in it, even though that might get published in one of the top tier journals. Typically, the clinical studies that are run and result in a drug being approved may involve thousands or tens of thousands of patients, and they're conducted very rigorously. And the authorities that review that data are expert at balancing efficacy with concerns around safety or uh, toxicity. So drugs that are approved by the 
international regulatory authorities, including the TGA here in Australia, have been very rigorously tested and are not subject to the sorts of criticisms that I'm talking about with respect to early stage or preclinical research. The preclinical research that doesn't provide a sound foundation will, in most cases, never go forward as a potential therapeutic. There might be some situations where people seek to take advantage of that preclinical research outside the regulatory apparatus, but that's unusual. And we have ethics committees in place to ensure that patients are not being enrolled in studies where there is no serious ethical foundation. And the drugs that are actually approved have been rigorously tested and patients listening to this can be confident that if a drug is being prescribed, it's been well tested and the physician prescribing that drug understands its uses and its limitations, as does the regulatory authority that approved it. So the FDA and the TGA are safeguards for the general public. And in in addition to that, we know that patients in dire circumstances where they've got a rare condition for which there is no accepted treatment are also walking into doctor's clinics today with papers under their arms from sometimes from top tier journals saying, but this paper says this particular treatment is going to be of help to me. Why don't you do something about it? What about those patients? What about people who are rocking up to doctor's clinics with that kind of information? That is a real problem. And that's why I mentioned earlier, we have ethics committees that are reviewing uh, those sorts of situations. So patient that comes up to a physician and they've just read a paper in Nature or Science or Cell, one of the top two journals that purports to have a new treatment for a particular disease, that patient should only be treated with that new treatment in the context of a clinical study, so not as one individual. So the whole reason we have clinical studies is to take patients who are very similar or as similar as we can find them and have half of them treated with a standard of care and the other half treated with this theoretical new drug. And then at the end of the study, we can compare the outcome for the two groups and say, yes, this new idea was really substantially better than the typical standard treatment that's available, or it was substantially inferior. But that's what we learn from clinical trials and the sorts of review that agencies such as the TGA or the FDA in the US provide are not present. They're not, they don't exist to review the preclinical data. So that may come one day, but today is not that day where we have review of the preclinical experiments with the same level of rigor as are applied to the clinical studies. Glenn, if I can summarize what you said, and you've said an awful lot of really useful information, the majority of papers, even in the top tier journals, 
maybe significantly limited, if not misleading, and I'm being kind here? I would say particularly in the top-tier journals because to get papers published in the top-tier journals, you've got to have something that's flashy or something that's out of the ordinary. That's what the top-tier journals like to publish. So mentioned earlier in our analysis, 90% of the papers in the top-tier journals could not be reproduced by the researchers themselves when they're asked to repeat the experiments. So that finding has been made by many groups, continues to be supported. Whether or not it's 90%, others have said that it's closer to 70% that can't be reproduced. The point is that the majority of papers in the top-tier journals can't be reproduced. And that's also important then for science journalists because when we're reading the newspaper or looking at things online, the journalists should be looking at those papers with the same level of rigour as what you and I might look at them. And labs have a perverse incentive to continue this trend for generating poor science. Yes, that's correct. Meanwhile, the TGA and the FDA protect us to some extent, but patients really, even today, are relying on their clinicians to really understand the basics of science and to guide their patients accordingly. Yes, that's true. And, uh, you know, physicians typically have a very extensive training period, so they should be well accustomed to being able to balance these issues. And as we've said, they're supported by the regulatory authorities who are really expert at balancing safety and efficacy concerns for drugs that are being developed and made available to patients. I think I could add something to that, and and that is to say that that may be true of physicians in one part of the healthcare system. It is not true necessarily of physicians across the whole of the patient's experience, including uh, sadly in primary care, where they will have very limited experience of clinical trials and all that kind of thing. Yes, I think the general practitioners have an extraordinarily difficult job. So they see a breadth of diseases and uh, illnesses, whereas the people who have the luxury of practicing in a specialist area can be much more focused and therefore expected to have a much deeper level of knowledge. But it is very challenging for general practitioners to be expert across the breadth of diseases that they might see in a typical day. It's a very difficult job to be a general practitioner. Glenn Begley, it's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you and exploring this really difficult topic. Thank you for taking the time and we wish you all the very best. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you and certainly hope this is helpful to your listeners. Thank you for this opportunity. The Health Design Podcast. Sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.